1: Children of the 80s are back with another review, one of our childhood favorites. I'm Patrick, filling in for Madigan this week, and with me is... I'm Chris. I'm Sancho. And I'm Rain. And this week we're taking a look back at another 1980s film, in this case, Time Bandits from 1981. Um, before we get started, though, we have a word from our sponsor.
0: This week's podcast is brought to you by Little People. They're not just for breakfast anymore.
2: Little People.
1: All right, who's got the summary for this week?
2: Uh, I do. In the 1981 world of Great Britain, the latest and greatest gadgets are prized more than family interaction. We meet Kevin, an 11-year-old boy who is a huge fan of all things history, especially ancient Greece. One night after being ignored by his parents, a knight in shining armor awakens Kevin in his bedroom and runs off into a forest. Intrigued by this bit of fun, Kevin asks to go to bed early the next night in hopes of something else happening. This time, a group of sexy dwarves invade his room. The guys are spooked, though, when they mistake Kevin's flashlight for the aura of the Almighty himself, whom they are running from because they stole his precious map in hopes of becoming the richest people in history. They relax a bit when they realize their mistake, that the person at the end of the light is a young boy. They then push one of the walls to his room down a long corridor. The supreme being appears and takes chase. The corridor ends and the guys, along with Kevin, fall into the black depths of time and space. Elsewhere, a being named Evil watches the dwarves from a distance with the hopes of stealing the map for himself and recreating the world in his own image, one where everything is wet and covered in plastic bags. Kevin and his pint-sized pals pop up throughout history by visiting a whimsical Napoleon and a charming Robin hood. But they then become separated in his forest. Kevin then meets the dreamy king of Mycenae and falls in love with him, much to the chagrin of his queen who despises the boy. The dwarves finally catch up to Kevin and rob the king of his valuables and take Kevin with them. They next find themselves on the Titanic, right before it misses that left turn at Albuquerque and sinks from the iceberg. Evil has been watching all this time, and as the ship falls into the icy water, he uses a Jedi mind trick to get the dwarves to search for the most fabulous object in the world, which is located at his insidious lair. Here, the group survives an ogre with a back problem and a giant who wears their ship as a hat. They make their way across an arid land but run face-first into an invisible barrier. Thinking they can go no further, the group argues and fights until one of them accidentally shatters the invisible barrier and reveals Evil's castle behind it. Once inside, Evil tricks them all into believing that they have won the most fabulous object in the world and steals the map from them. He then imprisons them in a suspended cage and leaves to begin his evil takeover of the world. They, of course, are able to escape and get help while Kevin sets up a diversion. Their cavalry is made up of cowboys, knights, archers, a jet, and a tank, but nothing can defeat evil. When all seems lost, the Supreme Being appears and lays the smack down. Of course, the dwarves ask for forgiveness for stealing the map, where it is revealed that the Supreme Being let them steal it to test evil. He orders them to clean up everything and properly dispose of the breeze so no harm comes to anyone else. Kevin gets left behind but quickly finds himself back home in his bed with his house on fire. He gets rescued only to find that his parents are more worried about their precious gadgets than his safety. Inside the toaster is a missed piece of evil. The parents touch it and are immediately incinerated. Kevin is left there parentless and alone. He has nothing but his memories and a few photos he took on his journey, one of which is a photo of the map in his hands. Will he use it to travel time by himself? Will he go back to Mycenae with his newly adopted father? We will never know. The movie ends with the camera panning away from the world and the supreme being rolling up the map.
1: Um, before going go much further, we've got to take care of a little business after Chris's wonderful summary there. Uh, if you like what you're hearing so far, follow us on Facebook at Lunchtime Movie Review or on Twitter under Lunchtime Movie. On each of these, you can keep updated on new podcasts as well as video extras and news about upcoming films. Also, if you'd like to give us uh, some feedback on how we're doing, good or bad, you can reach us at comments at com. Finally, as much as you may think that our advertisers and sponsors every week that we lead off the show with uh, give us a lot of uh, revenue that they actually don't. So if you're a fan of the show, help us keep it going by visiting either Amazon.com or Audible.com, which you can access through our website. Anytime you click on one of their links and make a purchase, a portion of your purchase goes to support the upkeep of this podcast. It doesn't cost you anything extra and helps us keep things going. Uh, now that we've got all that ugly business out of the way, Sancho, when did Time Bandits come out?
0: Time Bandits was originally released November 6, 1981. It was the only film released that date. came out around the same time were The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper, Ragtime, Absence of Malice, and Halloween two. The film grossed about 1365000 which was the 10th highest-grossing film of 1981, and it finished behind Chariots of Fire, for your eyes only, believe we did right on the podcast, and The Four Seasons. It finished ahead of Clash of the Titans, which I know we have reviewed, Absence of Malice, and Reds.
1: All right. <laughs> uh, November of 1981, what else was going on in the world? Well, the world first found out in November of 1981 that Princess Diana was pregnant with Prince William and that, how, how that de- desperately changed our lives so much. Fernando Valenzuela became the first rookie to win the Cy Young Award. Uh, the Space Shuttle Columbia became the first space shuttle to be, uh, first, first space vehicle in general to be reused, flying its second mission. The wedding of Luke and Laura on General Hospital was viewed by 30 million people across the world. The number one song. I was
2: one of those 30 million people. Oh, that's Lord. just sad.
1: <laughs> uh, the number one song uh, when Time Bandits was released was Private Eyes by Holland Oates. And the number one album that was stayed number one from seven, September 19th to November 14th was Tattoo You by the Rolling Stones. So. That kind of dates you a lot. I was surprised the Rolling Stones had a number one album that that late in their careers.
2: I think those guys were only in their mid-90s back
1: then. Yeah, they, they were spring chickens. So anyways, Time Bandit. First and foremost, it, it's a Terry Gilliam film. Um, and this is only the third film he directed. He had directed uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, uh, a classic by anyone's standards, Jabberwocky, and then this one. Um, he didn't direct any of the other Monty Python films um who here is a fan of terry Gilliam?
2: i like most of his stuff i like his weird style the way he approaches things differently sancho
1: yeah i like
0: some of his stuff i'm not you know i'm not a super huge fan i can't say that i've seen a lot of his stuff but uh i like what he does with some stuff and kind of psychedelic look and feel but i could take him or leave him
1: what about you randy
0: I mean, he's hit and miss, like we've talked about. Um,
3: but, of course, Monty Python and the Holy
1: Grail is one of my all-time favorite movies, so... Well, you know, one thing that I, I... It seems to be with this film, Monty Python isn't, and the Holy Grail it, is in itself is just kind of Monty Python. It's just kind of weird, but it's in their kind of wheelhouse. This is the first film, I think, of his career, and but I think he does throughout the rest of his career, where he kind of creates a universe into itself. I mean, elaborate sets... Elaborate costumes, and it's something that he seemed to take from this and then just use consistently through the rest of his films, like Brazil, uh, 12 Monkeys, uh, even Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. It, you know, that's very elaborate sets and costumes. Did, did anybody get the same kind of feel from this film as they did with those if you've seen them?
2: Well, I think that this was like the, the build up to in, Brazil. In, in. You know, it—that's kind of um, like his last uh, big hurdle to prove that he could do a movie like this before they would, anyone would um, allow him to create uh, or uh, um, film Brazil. That, that was kind of my impression of this. It's
0: interesting how uh, Terry Gilliam seems to be really kind of um, driven by this kind of this fascination with uh, Baron von Munchausen, and you know, in the Monty Python movies, he—you know—this kind of uh, era of questioning, kind of. Uh, you know, religion in general, but he's always really over the top with uh, set direction and, you you know, just um, everything is always really over the top, like, because, you know, just like what you had said, Patrick, with uh, Fear and Loathing, even, and Twelve Monkeys, just everything's just very over the top.
1: Well, do you, but do you think that adds something to the film or does it somewhat take away from, you know, and, and this film is basically a pretty simple, straightforward story, but he seems to add all these sets and all these characters and and even just strangeness for strangeness sake. Do you think it's a distraction for the viewer to watch a film?
2: I think if you're into his style of filmmaking, it's refreshing because there's not a whole lot of other movies during this time that are uh, really doing this style. Um, He kind of predates Tim Burton doing his, his eccentric and uh, surreal worlds. So I, I think it's, um, I always have seen Terry Gunn as more of like a a niche type uh, producer. Yeah, but as Sancho
1: said, this isn't really niche. This is the 10th highest grossing film of that year. This is a a box office hit.
2: Well, yeah, I think that just speaks to the fact that nothing really looks like this movie at the time. I mean, uh, it it creates a very distinct world other than uh, your your Blade Runners and your Star Wars, I think. It's kind of... Um, it's a very simple, quiet uh, thing where it's not really relying on a whole lot of special effects or technology at the time, but he can create this surreal world within that.
1: Uh, Randy, what were you saying?
3: You, you said this was his third film, right?
1: It's his third film, yeah.
3: And the, the besides Monty Python and the Holy Grail, what else was there?
1: Uh, Jabberwocky. It was like 1978, 77. It had Michael Palin, so it commonly gets confused with a lot of the Monty Python films.
3: I don't know about you guys, but it seemed like with the, I mean, inclusion of the two Monty Python actors, uh, Cleese being the other one, it, it almost seemed like they like he injected those two just for security, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> just to make sure that, uh, you know, he could have something to anchor this film by. Um, they're completely irrelevant. They're asides. Um, and they're, they're wholly Monty Python-istic. Um, And I just thought maybe he, since it was only his third film, maybe he just wanted a little security blanket <laughs> in there.
1: Well, There's probably some truth to that because right off the top of my head, I can't think of any of the Monty Python players who appear in any of his films going forward after this.
2: After did uh, any of them help him write this movie, do you know? I don't think so. Michael Palin and uh, Terry
1: Gilliam were the writers. Oh, so Palin did write this one.
2: So that would make perfect sense for him popping
1: up in it. And that's why he obviously gave him such a dramatic portion of the film, this little throwaway character that has nothing to do with the story.
2: Well, when you're in a movie with Shelley Duvall, that's a privilege in and of itself. So I, I don't see him losing out on this one.
1: I imagine Palin writing, Now, no, I want to write this one, and I want one of the beautiful bombshell actresses to play with me. And Terry's like, Oh, I've got a, a vision of beauty. Shelley Duvall. Jesus Christ, what an ugly look. I forgot she was in this film entirely, so, which is odd because I think we're having pretty much the same crew that reviewed The Shining a few months ago. And she was a horror film in herself, just her looks in that one. I mean, she reminds me so much of Gollum from freaking Lord of the Rings. It's sad. So, sorry. Mainly I, I her teeth, man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and that's, bringing that up, uh, that's something you wanted to bring up, Randy, specifically British teeth.
3: Well, I mean, that uh, if you guys have ever listened to uh, Michael Myers be interviewed about uh, his... Um, Um, Austin Powers, uh, he purposely had bad prosthetic teeth put on just kind of as a running joke that British heartthrobs could be heartthrobs with awful teeth or where that doesn't, that doesn't fly in America. And throughout this movie, (laughs) these British actors, um, just had just this God awful teeth and I'm an orthodontist. So it's like even more offensive to me. Um, You know,
0: I'm I'm fixated on teeth, and God, her teeth were just offensive. One of the the talking points I wanted to bring up is the, you know, the CGI, or or lack thereof. This is pretty solid stuff. I mean, aside from a couple, like when the uh, guy with the ship on his head, aside from that kind of blue screen type of thing that wasn't that good, they took regular size actors way before Captain America and actually, you know, shrunk them down with computers. I thought that was pretty good.
2: (laughs) They had some pretty good model making in this. I thought the the castle. Yeah. Um, I thought they did a great job. I mean, for
0: '81, because even Terminator, which came out later, was you know a little bit more rough around the edges than this was.
1: Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's something that Terry Gilliam seems to do very well with is the you know especially with set designs and even special effects. He really, on a limited budget, he's able to work things in very effectively and make them look very. Realistic, and when and when he can't give you the full vision, like the little kind of maze that the uh, the the time bandits kind of are going through to go to the game show, right when they're meeting evil, um, you know, he makes it dark around it so you can't see the outside of it. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm.
2: and I I think that goes back to his days doing animations for um for Monty Python. You know, he Mm -hmm. uh, had to be creative in that sense to to make things work that wouldn't normally work.
1: Now, Sancho, I wanted to get back to something you said earlier, kind of talking about, uh, Terry Gilliam's, uh, views on religion. And that was something that, uh, Randy had brought up before, um, kind of Terry Gilliam's view, views on religion. Randy, did you want to flesh that out?
3: I don't know what Gilliam's views on religion are. Um, but as the movie's going along, I'm like, what is the point of all this? It's just crazy random, like, acid trip movie. And then they get to the end. And the culminating scene where, you know, the supreme being, God, actually shows up and he's just kind of like this stuffy old British guy in a suit. And and they bring up, you know, the the kid, the hero of the story brings up the problem of evil. You know, if you're all powerful, all good and all knowing, why did you let all these guys die just to make a point? He's like, yeah. (laughs) And uh, and then he's like, well, why is there evil in the world? and he's like, I don't know, it probably has something to do with uh, free will, you know, and he brushes it off, because he really doesn't want to answer the question, and so I thought that was Gilliam bringing up the problem with the Judeo-Christian God, which, you know, the problem of the philosophical problem of evil is, is if you have a God with those three attributes, wherefore evil, you could say free will, that, that uh, covers, you know, people being dicks to each other, but that doesn't cover tsunamis and earthquakes, and and hurricanes and tornadoes um, and babies being killed and, and all those things, and uh, I just thought it, it was a commentary on the Judeo-Christian God and, um, and and you know the whole the whole map. You know, and they made the joke. You know, we only had seven days to create this universe. so Obviously, there were some major flaws in the map. What is the map of? It's a map of a bunch of flaws in the creation of the universe. And so I didn't have any time to read up on Gilliam and, and his uh, ideas and philosophies, but I thought I was able to infer at least that much from Gilliam. So I don't know. I don't know how much that carries.
1: Hey, And Sancho, you brought up the point originally. What, did, what were your thoughts on it?
0: I don't know. I just thought it was very interesting that the boy who's kind of helpless, and there's all these mythological scary creatures, but there's kind of these consistent uh, good characters who pop up through life. You know, they, they uh, you know, and then God is this kind of uh, supreme being, and then the devil's his thing. There's this discussion about the devil being created by. But I think it's interesting that the the people who are the protagonists are also flawed. The the dwarfs, they're flawed people. They're thieves, and they're you know they're out in the end. You know, they end up to be the ones that are. You know, carrying the ball to the end zone. I, I don't know if I took anything heavy from it, but I thought it was interesting that they used the small to show who were the most capable of all these things.
1: Sancho, you also had another thing: how this film played up to your sexual fetish for little people.
0: No, no, not mine. No, <laughs> and, but that's okay if somebody does have that. Uh, I was just great film. If you were into little people, especially in period costumes, it would be great because you get something across. You know, you got the Baroque period, you've got uh, one guy with little civils. And that spells sexy for some people.
1: Well, and you kind of brought up. Sandra, you kind of lead into the next point that you know the the, the time zones or the time errors that they kind of discuss, and Chris wanted to talk, kind of talk about that, kind of the choice and the the the,
2: the errors they visit. Yeah, I think they were all. Um, I think they were purposely picked for this movie. Uh, the first place they visited was uh, Napoleon, who of course is famous for being short, um, and I think that was a direct parallel to. The, the dwarves that uh what happens when uh these short people with big dreams what happens when they go wrong and it was a warning uh for for the dwarves that uh you know uh, they they are shown napoleon and uh what could become of them if they're unchecked then they are next shown in the the forest with robin hood who steals from the rich and gives to the poor an example of what good charity can do for those who are less fortunate, you know, in the context of this movie, I don't know how well the the adults come off, but that I believe is the reason for choosing Robin Hood. And then, thirdly, it's the uh, benevolent king who shows young Kevin what it's like to have real parents or a real father figure, um, which, uh, coincidentally, uh, ancient Greece in uh, classical. History is seen more as like the uh, the epitome of what can happen when you 're enlightened and educated, and this is where philosophy and all of our values came from so it, I think it's just an interesting that they chose these three uh, for the film
3: well then you... at the same time, uh, Sean Connery is the one who played the benevolent Greek king, and there is a just a just a subtle little Um, scene where he blithely and callously sends his three men to death. (laughs) And then he moves on to be the benevolent father figure Yeah, uh, playing the little uh, hide the the ball under the cups game.
2: I think with (laughs) anything that's related to anybody in Monty Python they always will show some sort of hypocrisy in the system. And uh, I think there's a lot of these little digs in that and I think that's a perfect uh, point that here's this guy who's seen as benevolent and he still has his Little flaws.
1: Well, it, it, even to continue that, the the last time zone they end up in is the Titanic. After they've stolen all this, the all this uh, writ, all the riches from the king, they end up on the Titanic. They have the money, they're living the life, and they end up in the water just as the as the steerage people do. At, you know, on, who are actually on the Titanic. So it's kind of a it's kind of an interesting transition between the time time zones and how they how they move their characters along. Yeah.
2: And I think that's a very clear um, point that uh, they're sending, that it doesn't matter um, how much money you're going to gather throughout your life, you're all going to end up dead in that water. (laughs) So it's just the way you live it.
1: Um, Chris, you also brought up something, and kind of before we started recording tonight, is how this film is an anti-grown-up film, which I thought was an interesting point. I'd never heard it referred to as that. What did you mean by that?
2: Well, I just think that um, that the for the most part, the grownups in this film are treated as um, just complete failures, as mindless uh, zombies to whatever's being sold or um, whatever is uh, whatever is in power. I guess you could say. For example, the the two parents are more interested in the appliances and what they can uh, what they can buy with their stuff that they're all commercialized and they could care less about their little boy. Um, you know, Napoleon, the, the the same way he's, he's seen as this buffoon that, uh, he's just amused by the, the, these little, basically the, the dwarves as little kids and, uh, he ignores good advice. So he's, he's seen as incompetent Robin hood, who is seen as very nice, still has like this, um, asshole streak to him you know he's very cheery but he stabs you in the back um even the king i think uh randy just mentioned how he sends his men to his death um and in the end uh, when uh, the little boy is being rescued by the firefighters uh his parents don't care about him um when his parents get turned into uh uh whatever the heck they got turned into at the end Did nobody stop to uh, look in on the little boy and say, hey, uh, are you okay? You know, none of that. I think that there was very anti-adults. The the Michael Palin, Terry Gilliam, uh, and Shelley Duvall characters are complete uh, morons in this movie. So I think everything is focused on the little boy and the little people.
3: I think it's making a strong point that uh, uh, this isn't too far removed from uh, the generation of my father. Uh, my father grew up in um, the '40s and '50s, and he, you know, actually Jay Moore does a, a stand-up com like part of his stand-up comic is he talks about when he went, when he goes to the park with his kids, you know, the father with the kids. Um, he thinks he's like, you know, really cool dad, and then he goes to the park and he's like, "There's tons of dads at the park now." When my dad went as a kid to the park, there were no dads, and. uh, and, and so kids in my, from my dad's generation were to be seen, not heard. And, uh, and so I think this is a commentary that, you know, parents need to be more involved in their kids' lives. Um, and, I, and, and I definitely think that there's an anti-materialism um, that uh, uh, Christopher talked about. Uh, you know, they're, they're de- the devil is obsessed with uh, little trinkets and, and the new technology. The parents are obsessed with that. So, yeah, I definitely agree on those two points.
1: Which uh, kind of brings us to the last point is the ending. Um, How satisfying was the ending to you? Uh, Basically, because it obviously, as we've kind of already discussed, it has deep religious meaning to it. But uh, do you feel satisfied with kind of this anti-Hollywood ending, Sancho?
0: Yeah, to me, it seems as though the movie just kind of ended at like a screeching halt. It went all the way with all character development, and then they just went for the burnt roast at the end. (laughs) <laughs> uh, it, I didn't I think the end was just kind of like an, it just kind of shut down that was it
1: uh Randy
3: uh I kind of like the end because well I like the end of the epic battle of Satan uh I, I already brought up those points <clears throat> I like the um I, I like the fact that God didn't really want to answer the problem of evil um I, I, I liked uh um, I, I like the, the philosophical points that were brought across, but I think what Sancho was talking about was when they went back, when he went back to just in the present time and his parents just got scorched, maybe that was unsatisfying for Sancho, but I mean, I think that was him making uh, kind of like the big, um, point that Christopher was talking about, which was these parents suck and, uh and i think he was he was you know what i mean what was the last thing they were doing they were worried they were holding their like toaster oven which i guess in 1981 was probably pretty new technology and uh and because they were more worried about their toaster oven than their kid whether he was all right um you know they got zapped so to me did come to screeching hall i think that was his big point was was parents pay attention to your kids uh don't um don't be so obsessed with uh your uh your modern uh conveniences and technologies and that kind of stuff I think that's what I mean I really think that's kind of the point of the film
2: yeah I had to think about the the very ending uh a couple times because you know it's it's kind of weird that uh he's just left there by himself at the very end and it, it pans away my my only uh guess my only assumption is He's left there with the pictures, and one of the pictures is that map. So um, he conceivably can still time travel. And uh, I, my personal uh, opinion, because I like in, ambiguous endings and reading into it, is that he was able to go back um, to Mycenae and live with that guy uh, because he loved the, the Greek history so much. I mean, I fig- I kind of think that's why they had Sean Connery as the fireman and give him a wink. Um, It's just kind of a little uh, foreshadowing of what uh, will happen to him once the movie ends. Hmm.
1: Interesting. Uh, But uh, let's start wrapping it up. Um, Basically, uh, what's the final word on Time Bandits? Uh, Randy, you want to go first?
3: Sure. I mean, um, as I was watching it, I mean, it it seemed like it was Monty Python meets History of the World Part 1 meets Never Ending Story with a twist of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And, uh, it was, it was like, as my wife was kind of watching it with me, she's like, this is just a shit, crazy movie, why are you guys reviewing this one? Um, but as, as it went, I kind of, I kind of appreciated what Gillian was trying to do and what he was trying to say. And, um, so I, overall I liked it and I thought for 1981, the special effects were pretty damn good. Uh, so for me, I give it, um, uh, one and a half thumbs up. <laughs>
1: So um did you see it in the 1980s do you remember seeing it
3: I was se- I, I was seven and I never I ne- had never even heard of this movie
1: until we um, until you had to watch it for It's
3: got an all-star cast it's got uh Ian Holm as Napoleon it's got John Cleese it's got uh Sean Connery um, other actors that are I mean it, it <laughs> I'm shocked that I've never heard of this film
2: or never seen
1: it. It has Kenny Baker. Kenny fucking Baker. R2-D2 himself.
2: Mm -hmm. Kenny fucking Baker. (laughs) And one of the Beatles. (laughs) To write a score.
1: Yep. Um, I remember seeing this actually at the drive-in when I was a kid, paired with something that at the time I thought was a better film. Um, I did not like Time Bandits at at all. It was a little strange for me. Um, Who who was in it meant nothing to me. Um, As far as actors, that was before I was aware of who James Bond was. The only person I knew who was in this film literally was Kenny Baker and I didn't even know what he looked like. I knew he was one of the little guys. That's all I knew. Um, He's actually fidget for those who are interested. (laughs) The one who gets crushed at the end of the film. But uh, he... You know, it it re- I did not like this film. I did. I, I know I saw it a couple times at various different drive-ins. It was always the second feature, and I think I saw it on HBO once or twice after that. Um, I have not seen this since probably the early '80s, and I was actually quite taken with how much I actually kind of enjoyed the film. It was. It was, I, I'm not a huge fan of Terry Gilliam, but it, I, I, the deeper meaning, especially the the religious um, implications of a supreme being or God or whatever you want to refer refer to it as. I found it was very interesting, their take on it at the end of the film, and that, you know, God creates evil, and evil has a purpose in this world, and, some, and sometimes the purpose may be just God's whim. Um, and I'm an atheist, so that's what I find entertaining about it. Um, it I, was, uh, I enjoyed watching it. I don't know if I'd watch it a lot, but I'd watch it from time to time.
2: Yeah, I appreciate uh, Terry Gilliam's... Uh Uh, Style, his sense of humor and uh, the the themes in his movies. I love pretty much all all of his stuff, so I'm very biased towards anything he does. Uh, I thought this this holds up very well over the years, especially since they didn't really rely on a whole bunch of uh, special effects or anything like that. Uh, I always say uh, if you're bored on a Sunday, watch this film with the kids. Well, that's it for today's Nostalgic Review. Please let us know what you think of the film in the comments section on our website and rate it from one to five stars on that page as well. If there is an 80s film you'd like us to review, please send us an email at comments at moviehousememories.com with your name, your pick, and your location. And finally, if you are of the social media persuasion, you can look the MHM Podcast Network up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you do, please give us a follow when you find us. On behalf of the whole gang here at Lunchtime Movie Review, thanks for tuning in, and until next time, we have to get out of here, and you guys are invited. This podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme song for Lunchtime Movie Review, Fireworks, is brought to you by Alexander Nakarada, at serpentineSoundstudios.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Lunchtime Movie Review, the MHM podcast Network, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment LLC, unless otherwise noted.